Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Negotiation. On today's show, we talk with Justin Mallon, founder and CEO of Silk Road Telecommunication, a data services company based in Hangzhou. Justin has been in China since the 90s and founded his company in the year 2000, foreseeing the immediate need for data service centers to play a pivotal role in China's emerging internet rollout. We talk about what it means to process immense amounts of data for high traffic days like 618 or 1111, the singles day shopping bonanza, and how China grew from no internet users to triple that of the U.S. at nearly 900 million today. We talk about the state of China's mobile internet and which of the big three are dominating and why, including a quick lesson on something called peering that is widely used in North America but still not adopted by the Chinese carriers. We also talk about 5G, what it is, what it means for infrastructure, and the future technologies it brings significantly closer to becoming a reality. Lastly, we talk about Huawei, how the company is doing amidst tremendous pushback from the Trump administration on security concerns on one side and the impact of COVID-19 that has decelerated the rollout of 5G, something that most expected to catapult Huawei into the top rungs of the market. Enjoy. There's an inherent latency that's, that's between 20 and 40 milliseconds just on the 4G network. What 5G does is it effectively takes that latency down to zero. So what it actually does is it makes the connectivity so much smoother and absolutely instant. What that actually allows companies to start thinking about doing is this idea of driverless cars. So you can't really have a driverless car if there's a latency of 40 milliseconds and the car's looking at running into an accident. If that latency gets down to zero, all of a sudden, everything is wide open. It's like you're sitting on the server processing information and content instantly. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore. But entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Todd. Good to talk to you again. You and I go back a ways. We were friends in Shanghai. We used to play a little softball together. And I once interviewed you on my podcast, The China Startup Pulse. Tell everybody a little bit about where you come from, how you ended up in China, and what you've been doing since you got there. So I grew up in uh, California, San Francisco. And uh, I don't know. I was one of those kids who, who as growing up, really wanted to do something uh, internationally. Um, you know, I thought the idea of 007 was really cool. And since I could never, ever be a spy, uh, the idea was to do something in international business. And, and China at that point was, uh, you know, this, this kind of backwaters country that had a lot of potential and a lot of history, but uh, was not fulfilling its, its, its historical promise. So I don't know, as I got through college and started learning more about China and graduating with a uh, Asian history major and, 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 learning more about the place, uh, it seemed to me the place to be for the future. And so I actually came to China the first time, I think, in 1990. So I guess now you can figure out how long I've been in China. Uh, 
fair enough, I was in college back then. Um, and, and landed in a country that was just full of energy and, and, you know, some excitement and, uh, and, and just had this, this untapped potential, uh, to do something really kind of special. Um, after college, I started working in, in, in Hangzhou, um, which is, you know, a couple hours outside of Shanghai. And back then really the only thing you could do was, was trading. Um, you know, it was a manufacturing site. We were in, uh, the, the garment manufacturing uh, piece of that trade. Uh, and it was great. It kept me in China. But a few years into that, uh, one of the technologies that we, uh, we got into and helped us in the trade piece was actually the internet. Um, when I landed in China first time in the trading business, I was sending faxes at midnight after running around factories. And it was a very expensive and be very, very inefficient. Uh, so signing up for the internet and getting on email uh, to me was a catalyst in understanding what technology could be here in China and how technology could actually, to some degree, you know, fundamentally change how people do business. So that was my sort of kickback into the technology side of, of my journey in China. Um, and the other thing that really kept me in China uh, was just this, this incredible constant need for improvement, for growth, for uh, experimentation in, in new ideas, for uh, this idea that they could really be so much better than they were. Um, and, you know, it just allowed me to, to be in China. And every year was always something new. Every year was always some grand plan to, to, to improve in here in the country. And it made it exciting. So uh, I, I, after your years in China, I think you know the sort of expat rule, which was uh, those who make it three years start to have an understanding of China. Those who actually get to five years have an appreciation and a deeper understanding in China. Um, and then to some degree, those who pass the five-year mark never leave China. So to me, initially, it was always the three to five year plan and then, you know, return back to the States. But by the time I got done five years on, looking back at what China was when I arrived to what it had become, it was very obvious to me that this was the place to be. And this was where I wanted to stay. And this is where I wanted to try to do something significant. Now, I know you might debate the level of success, but you are part of a very small group of successful foreign entrepreneurs in China. Tell us about the beginnings of SRT Technologies because it's a fascinating story made especially so by the fact that you were so early in the game, a game that, as you've said, many didn't feel worth playing. Yeah, so, so I will debate successful. I think, uh, uh, you know, to, to what my aspirations were then and, and, and how long it's taking us to get to where we want to be. Um, you know, it, it's been a challenging road. Um, so success sometimes, at least back then, success was really being able to create a business that had staying power. So uh, SRT, uh, which I founded in, in 2000, is, you know, we're still alive and kicking and doing actually quite well right now. But the challenges were, were, were incredible. Um, so, you know, the, if, if an idea of success is being able to grit it out and really work through all the various challenges and all that China can throw at you, then absolutely we're, we're, we're amazingly successful. Um, 
you know, the other side is if success is at scale, we're, we're getting there. We're definitely getting there. Uh, so we're a 20 year long uh, startup that's finally starting to hit its stride. Um, but what I mean by that is, is 20 years ago, our idea was to get into the data center business. Um, back on that idea of what the internet of what email brought to the uh, trading companies and actual, you know, global commerce. To me, there was this idea that the internet will be a fundamentally changed, uh, will fundamentally change uh, how China does business. And of course that's panned out or that's been proven over the last uh, five years. And the idea was I wanted to be a part of that. Um, it was this, this, amazing opportunity that I was able to be there at the very beginning of it. And, and, you know, as an example, when we came into, you know, when we came and started our business, there were no Chinese words for uh, data centers. You know, we, we kind of translated that directly from the English um, co-location, which, you know, in, in the data center space is basically the concept of someone giving you their servers. So they co-locate their servers with you. There was no word for that. Um, so we helped create those words. Um, <clears throat> and, and it was a very interesting and very challenging time because uh, China's telecom infrastructure is owned and operated by three incredibly large uh, state-owned enterprises, you know, China Telecom, China Unicom, and China Mobile. And, and back then they had the one key resource you needed, which was networking. Uh, and they didn't want people in their space. So for the first five, however many years of my business, it was a constant battle uh, with these carriers to, to get the access we needed to, to, to drive our business. But we knew that we had this opportunity and we knew that we were, had a, a model that would work because a state-owned enterprise, in a lot of times, they're really good at having resources. They're not necessarily so good at having uh the concept of service that you need to, to operate a successful business. So laying pipes, putting in infrastructure, uh, creating a, a massive organization that can service or that can bill and, and, and provide that service is great. But, you know, in running a data center, you need to be really hands-on and you need a really strong operations team. And to some degree, the carriers weren't good at that, which was the opportunity we saw. And of course, the challenge at that time was then to figure out how to survive as that market need came to a point where it is right now in that instead of the carriers being our competitors, they're our partners. So that was a 15-year journey to going from what we knew ultimately that had to happen in that the carriers had their core resource and we're very good at it. We had our core, we have our core skill set, and we're very good at it. And it's now developed into a, co uh, a cooperation model. <clears throat> Getting through those 15 years though, oh boy, that, that took a lot of work. It took a lot of creativity. Um, you know, my business is an incredibly capital intensive business. So we really touched upon all aspects of, of how to operate in China. Um, and then I guess to close this, this portion out. Uh, the market right now here for what we do is is exploding, uh, and and it was only re-energized or further energized by this recent uh, coronavirus. Uh, in that right now, a lot of services that were starting to go online have now been immediately pushed online. Online education, online business services. 
um, you know, uh, uh, online communication, <laughs> online video, online gaming, um, everything's online right now. And that's just only reinvigorated our business. I guess that just points to how much the game has changed over the years. I remember a rather funny story that you told about when you were starting out and you wanted to get your data service license for your company and you went to get it and they didn't know what it was. And then three years later, they came back and asked you why you didn't have a data service license. And you looked them in the eye and said, well, because you didn't know what it was when I came to you the first time, I guess. It has really changed a lot in a short period of time, which is surprising given how capitally intensive it is to get into that business. So, so there's a couple ways to look at the industry. So, uh, you know, one thing we did very early on, uh, and, and, you know, this kind of delves into a separate, uh, but, you know, adjunctory um, conversation is, is this idea of, of relationships in China. And, you know, the idea really comes around, that when we started our business, we didn't know anybody. We started it and, and built all those relationships. But what we did do was spend a lot of time educating and talking with the relevant people who are supposed to be at that time regulating and or, you know, the key uh, gatekeepers within this space. And, you know, as you mentioned on the data center licensing, they didn't have one. They didn't know what it was. And we spent uh, a year or two explaining to them the business and understand, you know, helping them understand what, Technically, they're supposed to be regulated. So given that, you know, we ended up building a lot of credibility across the space just on the fact that we were, you know, working with, educating, uh, talking with, and helping them kind of develop this, this process and this, this uh, licensing process. Now, as you go forward, though, uh, technically, data center business is building the underlying core infrastructure. So we build, up, operate, and maintain and own the buildings that house all the servers for the, the internet. So uh, they're, they're very high, highly designed, high tech, uh, very secure uh, sites that someone uh, like an Alibaba, like a Tencent, like a Jingdong would, uh, would be willing to put their service, which is their heartbeat. Um, you know, none of this service, none of the internet works without the servers, without the building that, uh, that makes that actually happen. Um, but yet again, similarly, because uh, this idea of data center and underlying data services has really expanded now into cloud, into uh, you know analytics, into big data, into AI, a lot of that is now yet a new layer on top of the core infrastructure that we provide. So yet again, there is still no clear separation between what we do and someone who runs a cloud business. So a cloud business is technically not a data center. It's actually a platform on top of a data center. So the, the way it kind of sort of has been defined is this idea of infrastructure as a service. So infrastructure where the infrastructure side and then platform as a service and the platform guys are your cloud vendors. They're your AI vendors they're your big data analytic vendors. And a lot of times they're like, you know, GitHub or whatever, they're your, your core software uh, pieces of the puzzle. Um, and that now is actually put back in with the infrastructure side, which is what we do. So you're right. On the infrastructure side, it is very capital intensive. And there's only a few of us in China that are, are actually good in doing this. But on the platform side, in terms of cloud services and little pieces of the puzzle, 
it's not as capital intensive, but they're now being bundled into this, uh, uh, this sort of big data center services grouping in terms of licensing. So that's where you can see thousands of data center type licenses, but that also covers this idea of the services that go on top of what we provide. How does a data center prepare for events like 1111 or 618? Can you put it in perspective for us just how much data your servers have to try and handle during those 24 hour periods? We don't actually own the servers and we don't own the data. Um, All we own and all we do is we make sure that where those servers are located, that nothing bad happens. So the way to think about it is uh, we're kind of like an office building and uh, our tenants are our customers and the customers are running, you know, double 11 or singles day or, or 618. But those days are absolutely the highest volume usage of data and the highest volume created of data and the most uh, important slash sensitive data. So as we operate those buildings and and make sure that the buildings actually work, we have to absolutely be positive that anyone in and out of that building can get in and out and the the power is done and all that stuff. It's like a crush on a building and you need to make sure that you're absolutely there. So (laughs) back to your question, think about the Super Bowl. Are you sure you want to bring that up? You're a huge 49ers fan. (laughs) Uh, In a Super Bowl, that's where you have your tens of thousands of spectators and your, uh, your players, uh, everything is happening on there. It would be really bad if the power went out during a Super Bowl. Uh, in fact, I remember the 49ers previous Super Bowl trip and the power went out and the Niners were doing great up until then. And after that, they kind of got cold and that was the end of the last Super Bowl run for, for, or the previous Super Bowl run for the 49ers. So absolutely, what we have to do, our job is to make it absolutely certain that uh, during those periods of time, as, as regular periods of time, that our buildings are absolutely uh, online, powered up, uh, that the HVAC systems, so the cooling systems are in place, that all the systems are up to date, and there's no way at any point that uh, the power or any significant issue or, 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 or problem can happen because if that building goes down or if there's a significant issue within that building, basically all the stuff that's trying to happen during singles day stops. And the economic loss out of that is, is, is unimaginable. Now, I realize you might not be able to talk about these numbers anymore, but I'll ask anyway. In 2015, you had told me that SRT processed around $5 billion in sales in just the first 90 minutes of 11.11. What are those numbers like today, and what are you forecasting for 618? So, so, so to, clarify, to clarify, SRT didn't process anything. We just made sure that the customer... And, and obviously, singles data is Alibaba. So we just we had to make sure that the customer had the uh, power and the infrastructure in place to handle those processing. So we 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 don't uh, we don't actually handle the processing. Um, and, and those those are public numbers, so that's perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but that number and that uh, sensitivity right now has just gotten to an incredible level. So we're not actually allowed to to talk about that because one of the key things in my space is security. Um, and, and knowing who does and who handles and where that stuff is being handled and how that's being handled, 
is an incredible security risk. So uh, back when Singles Day started, this was a relatively new concept. I mean, I think that was one of the second Singles Day and, and it was great. And Singles Day right now can process transactions that are in the tens of billions within the first minute. Um, and that level of, of scale right now has it that our level of security and our level of sensitivity to what that means makes it that, uh, no, we, we can't talk about that anymore. Um, it's just an incredibly large number, um, and it's only going to keep growing as, as the behemoth of Ali and Tencent and all these guys just get bigger and bigger at what they do because this is what the market demands. You once told me that you were the sixth internet user in Hangzhou, an unbelievable statement in of itself. How has China developed from zero internet connectivity into the largest nation of internet users today with nearly 900 million, triple that of the US and nearly twice India? Yeah. So as I said in the beginning, um, to me, getting on the internet was a, a, a very uh, a self-serving um, solution uh you know my life back then in china i think it was 1993 1994 uh you know i had to wait for a newspaper that was uh you know days if not weeks old i had to wait for faxes to come from the the u.s side of my business to tell me what to you know to, to, to share with me what i needed to handle over the next few days it was just it was it was frustrating and extremely inefficient so the internet was a way to get online and make that happen and, and when I went to sign up for it, they barely knew what it was. They had the service, but it was buried deep. Um, and the infrastructure was incredibly bad. It was all dial up if that, and you know, there were phone numbers that you had to try and it was as slow as could possibly be. So it was all extremely challenging, but clearly uh, China as well as the rest of the world saw this internet and saw what it could bring. Uh, the carriers, and this is what they're very good at, were very deep into investing into the building the internet out. You know, there was a clear understanding across the board that uh, the internet would be a game changer just in terms of communication and, uh, and what people could do. So uh, while I was the sixth, I'm far from the last. <laughs> and, and, you know, what happens in that space is the cost to build infrastructure and then the cost to deliver to consumers uh, gets to a scale where ultimately your cost on delivering that service is, is, is very, very, very low. Um, you put in the infrastructure, you put in the pipes. So in this case, fiber, um, you link it all up together for the most part. Um, and your cost of delivery is, is very negligible to, to what you can take in in revenue. And that's brought this, uh, cost of internet down to a point where, like you said, 900 million people in China have absolute ready access to the internet. Um, then you bringing in, uh, you know, of those 900 million, a large portion are actually mobile users. And that really only happened as China went from, you know, 1G analog mobile phones to now rolling out the 5G, uh, which in my mind is also going to be a game changer for the next phase of this, this incredible growth here. So it really is just a function across the industry globally where the cost to deploy got to a point where the cost of uh, usage is something that everybody can afford now and has become a basic rate. But the next big thing I think is going to be 5G and that's going to be yet again, another game changer in this space. And we're not going to see that what that means for the next two to three years, but it's going to be a phenomenal change. I want to talk a little bit about the state of China's internet infrastructure now. Can you tell us what pairing means 
are China's carriers pairing? And if no, why? And if yes, when did they decide to do so? And why did they have finally agree to get along? So China still runs as uh, three separate uh, state-owned enterprises in China Telecom, China Unicom, and China Mobile. Um, and independently, they have built out these incredible networks. Uh, and what I mean by incredible is, is you know, you're looking at hundred gig, uh, hundred gig networks across a single China mobile or a single China telecom. And, and I would not be surprised, but I do not know if they're not yet running terabit networks uh, to really provide some of the most incredible broadband access within a single network. But there's two key points in here that are sort of uh, things that they still need to figure out. And as you mentioned, one of them is peering. Um, so someone on a China mobile network uh, doesn't, they go through a, 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 a funnel to get to a China telecom network. Um, it's, it's kind of a historical thing where these state-owned enterprises uh, ended up being competitors with each other. And they're given, you know, top-down metrics and targets that they need to hit. And the one way that they think they can hit it is by slowing everybody else down. Um, and there's been conversations, you know, five years ago, there were conversations about peering the networks. Uh, they still have conversations about peering the networks. And what that really means is, is those funnels, those sort of gating posts uh, get removed. And you can actually share information and share network across those. The way the carriers look at it is they don't want to do it because... You know, they have sometimes better infrastructure in one place and not as great infrastructure in another place. And they fear that they'll actually lose one of their competitive advantages if they let someone else onto their own network. Um, <clears throat> to some degree, though, that's a significantly less that's significantly less of an issue nowadays, because uh, what a lot of people are rolling out and has been successful in China for quite some time are CDN networks. So content delivery networks where basically a third party handles the uh, the distribution of uh, content over multiple networks, and it just becomes an added layer that resolves kind of this peering issue. Um, and it used to be that uh, people like Ali and Tencent would be using these con content delivery networks, but they've both also gotten to such an incredible scale. Um, and they're also running their own cloud networks right now that they themselves are doing this. So it used to be an issue. It's significantly less of an issue. So the underlying problem in terms of peering has not been resolved, but there's been other solutions that are in place where it's a significantly less of an issue. Um, I guess a key sort of example and the way to think about it is China Telecom used to be the biggest broadband network in, in China. But now with the rise of, of mobile and the rise of China mobile, they have significantly more internet users than China Telecom does. So all of a sudden they're now the biggest player in the internet. But yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of sort of mostly resolved at this stage. Uh, from a third-party sort of third services uh, solution. Let's talk about the impact of streaming. How has streaming and some of the streaming services changed the landscape of infrastructure? Has it changed it? Would you push back on the statement that, or the claim that it's been changed by streaming at all? Actually, I'd sort of push back on that one. Um, Please do. To some degree, streaming is is very intensive for bandwidth and network usage. Uh, but in actual terms of uh, infrastructure slash, uh, you know, servers, it, it, it's a lot less intensive than cloud. 
And it's a lot less intensive in usage in terms of big data analytics, analytics and AI. So streaming on the network side can be very intensive, but in terms of data centers and underlying infrastructure, it's not anywhere near as intensive. It's, it's a lot less racks in terms of, you know, the fact that the content can just sit on a couple of, uh, well, not a couple, but, you know, on, on, on hard drives. Whereas computing processing power is key in terms of what you need to do to run a cloud operation slash AI slash big data operation, because you're actually using a lot of computing power in that space. So to some degree, uh, and this kind of goes into what 5G could do here in China, um, but to some degree what streaming has done is it's really opened up the pipes. Um, it's made it that the carriers, the big telcos are, are, are and continue to invest in internet, uh, in, in broadband networking, fiber network infrastructure, which has opened that up, which is key. In terms of our space, uh, the data center side of it, uh, the cloud AI and big data are the ones that are really driving this investment in new uh, data center services because that's going to be what's going to drive the next sort of layer of growth as the China market goes from something that is B2C in terms of users wanting to watch the latest, hottest video to now also with this coronavirus where it's going more to B2B and people really wanting to actually take a lot of those services online. So we're going through a fundamental shift right now. The first shift, I guess, is as you said, streaming. Streaming was great for the network because um, it required the carriers to make that investment. This next phase is this B2B side, which is gonna be driven by what we do, building the underlying infrastructure, and then the cloud, big data, AI players are coming in to relate, to deploy their services on top of our infrastructure. And that's all going to trickle down into the B2B side where a lot more businesses are taking everything online. You mentioned 5G, and I'd like to go there for a second because 5G is being touted as a real game changer and it's being rolled out very quickly en masse throughout Asia. How are you involved in the massive 5G rollout? What does this mean for China's internet users? Maybe explain a little bit about what 5G is compared to 4G and 3G so that we understand the difference and what it might mean. And does China stand to gain a competitive edge with this technology? 4G right now here in China and around the world is absolutely fast enough to, 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 to play video over your mobile device. Um, and I know this because I was out on a trip with some friends uh, watching the Warriors uh, play in the last, not this year, but the year before's uh, finals. And so I'm watching it in a car, having a great experience, both sides, because they won. And because I was able to watch the game, it was phenomenal. Um, 5G doesn't change that piece of the puzzle. What, it, it, you know, the, the, the inherited implied extra bandwidth is, is not really needed to watch video. I mean, we're not, no one's going to VR, I don't think anytime soon, to watch basketball games while they're in a car cruising around the Chinese countryside. That's not what it does. What 5G does is it takes the latency. So the time it takes your device to go from your device back up to the servers, back down again, there's an inherent latency that's, that's between 20 and 40 milliseconds just on the 4G network. What 5G does is it effectively takes that latency down to zero. So what it actually does is it makes the connectivity so much smoother and absolutely instant. And the change that that's going to bring, you know, you talked about cars and bullet trains and stuff. What that actually allows companies to start thinking about doing is this idea of driverless cars. 
So you can't really have a driverless car if there's a latency of 40 milliseconds and the car's looking at running into an accident. If that latency gets down to zero, all of a sudden, everything is wide open. It's like you're sitting on the server processing information and content instantly. And that'll then open up. So it's not about the bandwidth that they've increased. It's actually driving that latency down to zero, which allows for driverless cars. It allows for you know, telemedicine. Um, it allows for remote surgeries. It allows for basically instant connectivity across the board. And while 20 to 40 milliseconds does not sound like a lot of time, those queries are multiple. You know, any single query to go to any single site is, is, is you know, 10, 15, 50, 100 different queries. You add that all up, it takes seconds. When that becomes zero, it's, it's an amazing experience. And it then opens up the concept of B2B solutions that could be deployed wirelessly across the planet. So it is going to be a game changer by providing that underlying technology, which then allows all these uh, services to finally come to fruition. So an example is I'm opening up a new web page for the first time and it is immediately all there the minute I open it, just like flipping the page in a magazine. Exactly. And that's not, that's not a function of bandwidth. That's not a function of bandwidth. That's actually a function of dropping the latency because every time you're pinging on a website, you're losing 20, 40 milliseconds, 20, 40 milliseconds. All of a sudden, done. It's, it's downloaded instantly. And then and only then can you start actually delivering real-time applications. So it, it would be like on your computer opening up a, a, a document. And once that document's there, boom, it's all there. It's instant. And, and so you ask the next question as to what that means and what I'm doing uh, or how that affects my business. Uh, it will require a lot more data centers <clears throat> because you'll need a lot more computing power um, to provide the applications and services that 5G will allow to happen. Um, and, you know, it goes back to your question about peering. Uh, what then becomes an issue is where a lot of data center services are delivered in Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, and Shenzhen because of the population density. Uh, this will actually start driving data center needs down into tier two, tier three cities, mm. because all of a sudden with the latency issue removed, the distance becomes an issue. Mm. So as fast as the networks are, you have distance issues. So it's actually going to drive data center builds down into the tier two, tier three, four cities. I studied a lot about AWS and did a lot of analytical research on them about four years ago. And one of the keys to their success and the fact that they're just eating the world these days is the fact that they had more nodes around the world. They had much, much better coverage, which inherently, I guess, reduced latency because of that geographic coverage. And they were sitting at something like 54 nodes or something, which was a lot more than anybody else had. Is geography becoming more important? So geographical location is, become, is going to be even more important with 5G, just given that the, uh, the ability to deliver services and applications um, will be made so much smoother with 5G. So geographical location is, is always going to and will be even more important as you go forward. And AWS as a global player is ridiculous. I mean, they've got 54. I don't know what they're up to right now, um, but they have a large amount of data centers. And the reason they have those globally is because you need to deliver the services locally. Um, and it can be, as you said, uh, you're, you're calling up a service, you're calling up a function. That function will then be because you're a user in a local place. It'll then be distributed down to the local node. 
which is key, which is key. So, you know, as, as Alibaba, though, over the last uh, five years has really taken their Ali cloud and grown it up into being by far and away the largest cloud provider here in China, um, they're actually similarly starting to make headway outside of China. Um, and the way I look at it is, is AWS got a really strong lead up front on this, um, and they have a lot of incredible technolo- technology underlying it. But to some degree, it also becomes, you know, who can provide the best amount of services for the best price? And as we all know, Alibaba is very good at driving costs down. And that'll be a competitive piece up against AWS. The last topic of discussion that I'd like to introduce for us is around the company Huawei. You're in the telco game. And we know that Huawei has been beaten up by a couple of different things recently. One being the Trump administration's war that they've waged on them and COVID-19's impact. How are they faring? How are they going to fare, especially now that the global rollout of 5G networks has actually decelerated? By far and away, Huawei is a very interesting company. Um, You know, they're private. They're not public. Uh, They started off and, and, you know, Ren Zhenfei, the the founder, um, is an incredible uh, leader and an incredible business guy. Um, And they came up in a time where, China's own telecom infrastructure was was growing and growing at a ridiculous speed. But at that time, uh, Chinese carriers really could only buy uh, uh, foreign or or non-Chinese equipment because Chinese companies couldn't do it. So clearly, Huawei got a bump up with uh, a lot of government support and a lot of uh, market support to to become a local Chinese uh, equipment manufacturer for the telecom space, just knowing how big the Chinese telecom market was going to be. And, and clearly they, they did some things that, that, you know, that have been rumored to and likely sort of proven to, to not necessarily be the best way to start off your company. Um, but on the other side, and this happens a lot in China, as we all know, they learned from what they took or they learned from how they started. And then they really started to do this, to do their own internal innovation. Um, and that's really taken them from, you know, kind of being this, this startup in China with an inherent market that was protected for them to now where they have some of the best 5G technology that's out there. Um, and to some degree, what Trump is doing and what everybody else is doing is the same thing China did when Huawei started. You know, China did the same thing and now Trump's doing the same thing on the other side. And the reason Trump has to do that to some degree is because the U.S. Uh, tel- the U.S equipment manufacturers lost a step and, and they didn't innovate as, as, as well or as quickly as they should have. And they're losing market share on it. So, you know, I guess the, the irony of this for all that uh, people are complaining about Huawei and complaining about the support that they got from China early on, the U S and Trump is doing the exact same thing right now. So what they're complaining about, we're doing. And, and it, it's just kind of this idea that, uh, you know, that as companies grow and people get competitive, uh, you know, government stepping in is never a good idea. And I've never thought it was a good idea on either side. They should let the competition and they should let their technology and they should let the companies compete on an even, on an even field. Um, and when governments get involved, that's how where you end up with a Huawei. And that's where you end up with, uh, you know, Trump doing what he's doing against Huawei. 
And if it was all on a fair field, we would probably not have just a single Huawei doing 5G. You'd have multiple companies doing 5G and doing it very well. And that's sort of the underlying issue. I thought it would be fun to end today's conversation talking about a good old friend of yours, a buddy of yours from Hangzhou, Jack Ma. I know you guys know each other pretty well. Uh, you've hung out together. You've done some backyard barbecues together. Any interesting anecdotal stories that you'd like to share? You know, we all started, I, I'd love to say we all started, we all started at the same time in the same place. Um, and, and quite simply, he was definitively a lot smarter than I was. And am, um, and and clearly that's shown by what he's managed to make Alibaba into. Uh, so so, you know, I knew Jack Ma back in very very early days, and and obviously he is incredibly busy now. Um, but you know, for him, there always was this core ethos of of trying to create something special and really sort of challenging the norms. And he was very good at that. And, and he was very good at, at taking this vision of creating something on technology, on the internet, that would literally change people's lives. And he has accomplished that in an incredible way. Um, and he worked really, really hard to get from where he was to motivate his team, to lead his team, and to drive this change that, that, that is now global. Um, so anecdotally, He's a very, very driven individual um, with a very clear vision who, was an, who is an incredible leader. Uh, and I just wish I was able to have more barbecues and spend more time with him to learn even more. Justin, thanks a lot for coming on the show, friend. It was a really intelligent conversation. I did learn a lot. And you have a depth of knowledge around some things that very, very few foreigners have in China. So thank you very much. Thank you, Todd. Uh, it, it's been a pleasure again. Uh, I'll push back on intelligence. It's just grit and fighting through every single day out here. Um, and eventually you have to learn something. A lot of times intelligence is evidenced by nothing more than a ton of scar tissue. So thank you once again. Thank you. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at wpic.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.